We acknowledge and are mindful that CSU Chico stands on lands that were originally occupied by the first people of this area, the Machupta, and we recognize their distinctive spiritual relationship with this land and the waters that run through campus. We are humbled that our campus resides upon sacred lands that once sustained the Machupta people for centuries. Welcome to the Rise, Teach, Learn podcast. I am Dr. Chiara Ferrari, Director of Faculty Development at Chico State, and we are happy to make this resource available to our campus community and beyond. The podcast is hosted by Dr. Jamie Lynn Gunderson, and she will engage in timely conversations with faculty, staff, and students, and give you a taste of the Chico experience. Subscribe to our podcast and explore the many resources available on our website. Thank you for listening. Hello. And welcome to Rise, Teach, Learn. I'm your host, Jamie Gunderson. In our seventh episode entitled Teaching Racial and Social Justice, we discuss the dynamics of teaching and talking about race. And we explore practices that serve to create brave learning spaces representative of all of our learners. All right, so I am here with Dr. Nandi, a professor in sociology and multicultural and gender studies. And I'm also here with Paul Bailey, a lecturer in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics. And I am really excited to engage in this conversation on teaching racial and social justice for this episode of our podcast. And I have to tell you in just full honesty and transparency, I did everything that I would normally do to prepare for a podcast. I read, I did research, I explored the topic until I felt like I could identify a theme. But when I actually sat down to script questions, I felt like I there was I couldn't figure out what questions to ask and I I didn't really understand, you know, where I could start. And so after a lot of thought and consideration and some counsel with other professors and and people that I look up to, um, I just want to approach this and, and be honest that as a white woman, I recognize my experiences do not mirror the experience of others who are different than me. And I know that there is like so much work that needs to be done, you know, not only for me to do better, but, you know, to leverage my role as an educator for others to do better. But I just really am unsure of where to start or how to engage in those conversations. And I don't want to harm anybody with my ignorance or my bias. I just want to be open to learning more. So I asked Nandi and Paul to come on today and maybe just open up this conversation about how we might engage in doing this work and and how do we leverage our experience in the classroom to better our experience as humans. So um, thanks for having me on, Jamie. Um, The first thing I want to do is um, ask that we name what we're talking about, because so far you've just been referring to it as this work. And I guess I'm wondering if you're referring to anti-racist work. I am. I am. And so that's one thing. Thank you for bringing that to my attention, because that's one thing that might seem a little uncomfortable is, is what do we name it and what do we call it? Yeah, if we're trying to do anti-racist work, we can call it that. And so if your question is, how do we begin the conversation? The conversation has begun at a national level, um, at a local level, and is happening at an interpersonal level all throughout this country. And so I guess what I'm, my reason for bringing that up is to say, 
we don't have to, to, to broach the subject like it's a new thing. Like people are alert and they know. We're seeing bumper stickers everywhere. We're seeing t-shirts everywhere. Even people's masks are saying, you know, I'm not gonna be silent. I'm, I'm engaged some kind of way. And there are many folks even driving around this community, Northern California with flags, American flags even, on their truck and we get a sense, we may not get it right, but many of us have a sense even of where, um, you know, what their perspective is on race relations, on politics and so forth. So I say all that to say the conversation has begun, but Paul may have some more depth. No, I I think you nailed it. And I'm glad that you took that angle you took with it. And one, like we got to name the things we're going to name not being able to name what it is that we're working on, what we're talking about, the work that we're doing, um, in itself can be a barrier to getting this work done. So I think that helps that so that we can get comfortable being uncomfortable talking about these things. Um, and then, yeah, the conversation is going. Like, so we're either gonna go with it or we're, or we're not. So I'm, I'm drawing a connection with a lot of our like supporting students in crisis and trauma work in that we have to name it to tame it, right? So we have to recognize the things that we want to change and, and control in order to be able to take steps to change and control them. And what I'm hearing is that we are, like I you absolutely hit the nail on the head. We are engaging in this conversation. This is happening. Something that I need to work on is how do I put myself as a professor in this conversation, how can I use my platform as an educator to extend this conversation to continue this anti-racist work within my field and my scope? Yeah, um, so one of the things that immediately came to mind, and, and I apologize because I'm terrible with name recall, um, but there's a scholar who, and I'm gonna paraphrase, essentially said, it is way more important for us to do something, anything to get us towards progress than to do nothing in fear of not doing everything right, right? Yeah. Like we gotta be willing to do the small things right and plenty of mistakes along the way to make progress happen. We can't say, I don't know the answer yet, so I'm just gonna be frozen. So I would say the first thing that I would advise um, any, not just instructor, but people in, um, in a position where they have an audience. So whether you're a parent or you're a high school teacher or a coach, the first thing you got to do is be willing to be uncomfortable because it is not a comfortable conversation. And I sometimes tell my students, I'm the most uncomfortable person in the room because I can't be quiet. Like if that's what we're talking about, if we're talking about whatever the issue is, human trafficking, prostitution, any kind of you know hard subject, particularly if it's racism, I, I gotta say something. I can't just listen to the crickets and then move on to the next subject. And so the discomfort is all around for a lot of people. A lot of folks are developing some courage and um, are working through their discomfort. People are dealing with the backlash of speaking through their discomfort, but that's the first thing. And I would say the second thing is, or maybe the first thing, and the second thing is to deal with the discomfort. The first thing is to read something, is to listen to people who know. It's to tune into some documentaries. It's to, to, to be empowered. And you know, we all know as educators that People who claim they know it all often don't. And it's the ones who say, I don't know a whole lot, who tend to know more than they think they know. And so 
um, you know, just as my senior seminar students are turning in their final papers this week, and I'm having to explain over and over the purpose of a literature review, I always say, imagine you're talking to somebody who claims they know something about the subject, and you're thinking, do you even read? Have you read a book on the subject? Well, your literature review is a way of proving, I've read, I know what people are saying, and now I'm going to give you some more of, of my own perspective. So you got you to gotta learn some stuff. And sometimes that means shut up and listen to people. Now, every person who speaks isn't speaking or any person who's speaking isn't speaking for everybody else. They're only speaking for their own experience, but they're also sometimes giving voice to the bigger picture. Um, and we've just got to be able to discern that and take it in and find a way to not make it personal. Because people are showing up with their story and we show up with our story and sometimes our being whomever, I'm not you know, personalizing this, but sometimes people show up with those stories and then it becomes a, well, you're attacking me. No, I'm not attacking you. Once you understand that it's a really big picture and that the picture has so much complexity woven into other areas of life and history, and that it goes just beyond personal experience, it's easier to not feel attacked or beat up when somebody's trying to tell you the story. I'm trying to do my best to arm myself with knowledge. I, I guess my question is, how can I take the knowledge that I'm gaining and the perspective, the new lens that I'm looking through, and, and put that into action. What does that look like? What's most impactful? Where can I start? Talk to white people. People of color, we have allies and one you, you're one of them, obviously. But the conversation about race relations in America, this is a conversation white people need to have. Because I'm hoping that in the circle of white people that there will be less anxiety, more freedom to speak, more freedom to express what they don't know or to be challenged on their um, on their assumptions. You know, I when I came to Chico State in 1999, I had taught at the university where I earned my PhD. I had already taught this course called Sex Roles. That's what they used to call it in the 90s, right? We now call it gender. Um, when I came to Chico State in 99, there was no gender course in sociology. And I'm like, how do you teach a discipline without gender as a component? So I created the gender course and now it's just a regular class, right? And I find that even though I created the course, I have experience, I have scholarly publications in gender. When I invite men in to speak or when I share a documentary where there are men talking about, about masculinity, which is my area of research, the students are like, wow. And I'm like, you know, I've been saying that for two months, right? So I just learned, I'm not even going to take that personal. I don't care how they get the information. I just want them to get it. The same thing happens around race. When white people, when I invite in a speaker or a documentary where there are whites talking about whiteness or white supremacy or racism, the students are like, yeah. And for the rest of the semester, they're saying, yeah, that's like, you know, what Tim Wise said, what Tim Wise said. I'm like, you know, I've been saying that, but that's okay. That's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll get it. So I think um, once we realize that racism is a whiteness problem, for one, um, it'll be we can shift the conversation. And then I'll, and I feel like I'm dominating the conversation here, but I'll just make this last right. point. Um, once upon a time, they uh, researched social scientists and other types of scientists used to try to understand race by talking to people of color. 
what is it like to be you? Um, I started undergrad in 1987 and I attended a college where there were only 35 black people my freshman year. Um, there's like a hundred and something at that college now. So I remember even being invited to come to classes and speak on a panel with other black students. Like, what is it like to be you? Well, somewhere in the 80s, social scientists shifted the direction of the research. And they started asking white people, what is it like to be you? How do you experience your whiteness? What is your, how do, how do you navigate life on a day-to-day -day basis around whiteness? And obviously a lot of white people were like, uh, I, 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 I don't know, I just kind of show up, which is telling in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But if you go on Amazon, and I do this in class all the time, if you just type in whiteness on Amazon, there's so many books because people have learned that there's real value in understanding racism by talking to white people. And so I would say that's a, a really good place to start, Jamie. It's it's hard to be reflective and self-critical when you're the default, because as the default, it's just expected, not questioned. There aren't um, these like external factors that shine a light on your whiteness. But for like, you know, an indigenous brown man, Chicano from California, there are external factors that shine a light on my indigeneity, my Latinx, my Latinidad, my color of my skin all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, conversely, like where I notice this, I guess this sort of invisibility of this power dynamic power group is with, you know, maleness. I present as cis male. And so in all of these spaces that we're in, like I have this privilege that can be hard to quantify, identify, describe, you know, it's like um, I hear it as like, you know, the water that the fish are in or the air that we breathe. It's just the default. It's right, it was right. Nandi said, I don't know, I just show up. And so it really takes some like hardcore stepping back and trying to survey a situation for me to understand really what masculinity means in the spaces that I occupy and how I interact with that masculinity. So then the same thing applies then to whiteness for white folks. Yeah. That's such a great connection. And I think that helps answer the how do I individually take my knowledge and the things that I am trying to do to arm myself with this new lens, this new perspective, and put it into action. But Paul and, and Nandi too as well, um, how, again, like the platform that I have as an educator in sparking these discussions in my classroom and making sure that my students have these perspectives are armed with this knowledge, how can I, I guess as a faculty member, embed these practices in my coursework, in my class discussions to ensure that this work, this anti-racist work is, is not only done within me as an individual, but is like coming out of me in my teaching as well. I was a K-12 teacher first and my teaching credentials are in mathematics and science. And so in STEM fields, especially math, like a lot of times folks are like, how do I even do this work, say in a math class, right? And I think part of that is because we get hung up on sort of the concrete because it's easiest for us to like wrap our head around. And so when we're talking about what is like anti-racist teaching look like, I think the first thing that a lot of us jump to in our heads is like, what's the explicit curriculum? Like, how do we make that work? So in a math class, that can be more challenging for folks that have been in this traditional system of instructing in STEM fields is like, 
well, what kind of questions do I ask or what kind of unit do I have? Like, what does the curriculum look like? What are the activities? And if you're like in a stats class, like there are plenty of statistics out there that we can look at that are related to race, that we can engage in some of these conversations and look at them very analytically. Um, but I, I feel like we're missing sort of one of the less obvious but really important pieces of this as well, which is some of the more the, the less concrete stuff. So things like the hidden curriculum or the, the dynamics of how our class works. So one of the things that I try to, when I'm talking to folks to hopefully kind of shift this conversation a little bit is to say, hey, let's talk about your students' experiences in that math class, in that chemistry class, in that physics class, whatever it may be. Um, because if we're centering the students and thinking about their experiences, we're gonna be more inclined to start doing this work and then we can eventually get to this point where we can talk student agency. I have two examples. One, um, I attended an HBCU for my master's degree. Um, I'm also from Baltimore. And so I went to school my entire K through 12. I never lived around anybody who wasn't black. And I always went to school with only black people for 12 years. So um, and then I went to St. Mary's College in Southern Maryland, you know, where there were very few of us. Um, and then I worked in a prison where everybody was black, the officers, the lieutenants, the inmates. Um, and I went to an HBCU for my master's. And one of the things that really struck me was that not only were all my professors black, but the things that they taught me in women's studies, it's a women's studies major, that they used all authors who were black. Now, I didn't know feminist theory and this was in 1993 when I started. So right at the start of the, the, the third wave of the feminist movement and all of the authors were black. And so one of the things that I learned, and this is a long way of saying that one of the things that I learned is no matter what you're teaching, somebody of, a, of color has said that thing. They've written about that thing. There's a TED talk, there's a thing. And so just using the resources is my point, using the resources where you can teach an intro to psych class or an intro to social class and use all authors or videos or other resources by people of color or by women or by um, queer folks. So that's one thing, it has to do with the curriculum. The second part has to do with the actual assignments themselves. And I only thought of this, Paul, when you were saying that. So when you give students an opportunity to explore or when you're providing them with examples on the board or you're pulling it up, there are ways that you can be talking about race or gender or sexuality without actually talking about gender or sexuality. So for example, in a statistics class, I haven't taken a statistics class in 20 some years, but in a statistics class, I wonder if just trying to teach them about just some of the basics, about distributions, for example, the information that you're pulling up doesn't have to be about apples, oranges, and a train and what time it's going to arrive. Like you can use data where you're looking at disproportionate numbers of people who are incarcerated. And you can just be talking about, okay, let's talk about distributions and means, medians and modes and all that stuff, just based on those experiences. And if you want, you can go in and unpack why things are that way, but just for the simple lesson itself, it doesn't have to be neutral. It can be a lesson that includes examples about race. And I like the idea of both 
strategies that you guys share because it kind of seems like that helps kind of build that lens for our students and yeah. we can do it in a way that we are like you said just embedding it into whatever kind of teaching and coursework it just takes a little bit of you know thinking about what things am I choosing to bring to my students? And is it representative of a diverse population? And yeah. if not, how can I go back and be mindful of adding that diversity into the voice? Yes, Jamie, I would also caution you that um, you can be the sweetest peach on the tree and there are gonna be people who don't like peaches. And I share that because what you're doing is saying, I'm willing to take some risks. You're already, that's what you're saying to us. I'm willing to put myself out on a limb. I just want to know how to do it in a way that is um, going to affect the, the least harm. I want to maximize the help and minimize the harm. And it doesn't matter how sweet you are. You have to also arm yourself with a couple of things. That defensiveness, it's a natural response, but you've also got to be mindful that it, it's, it's there to, to protect you, but it doesn't help other people to say, oh, that's not what I meant. And yeah, oh, no, or get mad because you meant well and and it just didn't come out that way. It's a natural response to be defensive. That's so just know that. But there are going to be people who no matter it, they could be white people who you're talking to. These could be people at your Thanksgiving table who's sick and damn tired of you bringing it up, of talking about it, and I know I'm not naming it, whatever it might be, whatever social justice issue, somebody's gonna get sick of you talking about it. Somebody's gonna say, why are you talking to me? I'm not like that. Um, and somebody else is going to, you know, just name you as a person who's just not safe just to hang out with and have drinks, because good Lord, you're always talking about a thing that makes them uncomfortable. You can navigate every interaction, but just know that none of that is about you. And you can just push forward. You can decide, you know, interpersonal interaction by interaction, but just be prepared that somebody's going to be like, gosh, Jane, Jesus Christ. And then you're going to be like, you know what? Well, fine, fine. I won't. I don't want you to go there. I also, and this, this last piece, I also want you to know that there are going to be some people of color who don't appreciate you having this conversation of picking their brain, of being kind to them. And I don't want it to be like, I sometimes hear people saying, oh, well, you know, there was this, you know, these two people out in the street fighting and I jumped in to help somebody and then that person turned on me. So you know what? I'll never help anybody else again. Don't go there because everybody doesn't speak for everybody. And so you just decide interaction by interaction, whether it's safe, if, if you feel safe and comfortable to proceed, move a little out of your comfort zone and then just be present in a way that that people know that when you're that you mean well that you're coming from a good place it's not going to always work but just keep just don't don't do that well I'll never help anybody ever again thing I've had to kind of work up the courage to ask I guess in this conversation yes please do um and so is it okay when these conversations come up for me to say like, I don't know, not from a, a, a perspective of like, that I haven't done enough research or that, or to say that like, I, I don't know because I'm not trying, but because I, I don't know. And is that okay? Or does that imply that I should be doing more, doing better? No, no. Okay. say you don't know. 
Okay. That's the preferred response of all the boxes you can check. I don't know is the preferred one. If you genuinely, authentically, and essentially don't know, say you don't know. Okay. Well, and the thing I love about that in academic spaces is I don't know is not the end of a conversation. It's a lot of times for me, it's the beginning of a conversation, right? It's the beginning of a learning opportunity. I tell my um, teacher credential candidates this all the time because they feel like when they're beginning teachers, I have to know everything, right? And I'm like, well, you don't know what kind of random question your student's going to ask. You don't know if they took a different you know, strategy for trying to get a result done than what you had in mind. So you might say, I don't know what you did. I need you to talk to me about it. And so that's a conversation starter in a lot of cases. Like, I don't know the answer to that. Let's go look it up or find more information. Or what do you think? Do you know more about this than I do? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, no, absolutely. Just like broadly, even in, in, in educational settings, I think right. I don't know. There's a lot of power behind I don't know. Right. And particularly when the thing that you don't know is an existential thing. It may not be as deep as existential, but you know, I, I'm not hugely in favor of essentialism, but if you if you've not lived it, then you don't know. Or you can even say, well, I know this because I've read it, but I've not lived it. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's absolutely okay to say you don't know. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. This helps me so much in just like First of all, understanding how I might redesign some of my courses in the fall to just make sure I have that diversity in my curriculum, making sure that voice is there. And then also feeling a little bit more comfortable with having these conversations and being able to say, you know, I don't know, but here's what I've learned and here's what we can explore together to kind of come to a better understanding to continue yeah. this anti-racist work in our classes. So. Uh, Paul and Nandi, this has been such a good conversation for me as an individual. So I'm hopeful that it's impactful for every other faculty Absolutely. that listens. But yeah. I just want to personally thank you for giving me kind of a broader lens to look through in this work. Absolutely. Anti-racist work. I'm going to start naming ah! it. Anti-racist <laughs> work. <laughs> and there you have it, folks. Today we discussed the dynamics of teaching and talking about race, and we explored practices that serve to create brave learning spaces representative of all of our learners. For more information, including research, practices, and resources, check out our FDEV teaching guides entitled Culturally Responsive Teaching Practices and Black Lives Matter in the Classroom. And I personally encourage you to explore the impact of your teaching practices by analyzing the equity gaps using the dashboard. I'd like to thank Dr. Nandi as well as Paul Bailey for contributing to this episode. I'd also like to extend a special thank you to Quinn Winchell for our podcast music and to the vocal stylings of Dr. Browning Nadeau for the land acknowledgement. Join us for our next episode where we will engage in conversations centering on student success. Until then, we got this Wildcats. <laughs>